In this episode, I am once again joined by Dr. Caroline Van Dam, an adult psychiatrist and family and systemic psychotherapist specializing in chronic psychotic disorders and co-teacher of Buddhist guru and Tibetan medicine doctor Nida Chenaktsang. Dr. Caroline draws on her extensive clinical experience as a psychiatrist, as well as her personal meditation practice, to explore the adverse effects of meditation, including psychosis, depersonalization, derealization, and spiritual bypass. Dr. Caroline considers the pros and cons of sleep deprivation as a spiritual training tool, visualization practices of Buddhist Vajrayana, and shares stories of extended meditation retreats gone wrong. Dr. Caroline gives recommendations for those who wish to practice intensively, including danger signs to watch for, the markers of high-risk individuals, and the importance of a strong psychology and deep foundation in preliminary practice. Dr. Caroline also details her own success in using meditation with her patients in clinical settings, including with populations typically considered to be high-risk and she recounts her patient reports about the significant benefits of their practice. So without further ado, Dr. Caroline Van Dam. Dr. Caroline Van Dam, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me again. I'm so pleased to be talking with you again today. The last episode we left on a bit of a cliffhanger, having talked about your life, uh, your clinical life, and also your involvement in meditation and co-teaching with Dr. Nita Chenatsang and so on. Very action-packed, I think, first episode. We left on the cliffhanger that we were going to talk about adverse effects of meditation, integrating meditation experiences, even some personality disorders, and maybe something about gurus too. So I think this is going to be very, very interesting indeed. Of course, you're, you're well aware that a characterization of, should we say, mindfulness research and the presentation of mindfulness popularly is that, sure, it's gone through a phase of, some have said, of being presented as a sort of panacea, a cure-all. Uh, it's great for depression. It's great for productivity. It's great for, for uh, everything. So, uh, but of course, there, is, there are also certain voices who suggest that there are negative effects or adverse effects of meditation, which are being ever more widely reported, perhaps most popularly by Willoughby Britton and Jared Lindahl, people of that nature. I'm curious then, as a clinician, when you hear adverse effects of meditation, when you hear that phrase, what comes to your mind? What comes to my mind? Well, actually, it's for me, it's quite uh, easy because let's say I'll, I'll talk from my personal uh, story, how, how I came to be interested in that, um, is that um, when I was uh, studying to become a psychiatrist, so when I was a resident, uh, so residency in Belgium is five years, uh, and every year we switch in different uh, subjects of psychiatry so we so that we have a very um, well-rounded uh, education as a psychiatrist and um, I spent a year uh, on a ward which, uh, which was specialized in taking care of people who suffer from severe depression and uh, on that ward um, the psychologist was very much into mindfulness meditation uh, which was, it was, uh, let's see, what year was it? Before 2010, uh, I don't know exactly what year, 2006 or something. Um, and back then, uh, you know, it, the, the clinical world had discovered uh, meditation, 
uh, through John Kabat-Zinn uh, and of course uh, all his articles that have been published and that had really shown a lot of evidence that it was uh, very um, powerful for people who suffer from uh, depression and from anxiety disorders, which is true, it's really true, it's really helpful for people recovering after an acute phase. So I remember from working in that ward, um, we would wait that people get over the acute phase, the, the, the most severe phase, which is a dangerous phase, and suicide is still very uh, a big risk. Um, we wait that people start to recover, and when they start to recover, they could join uh, the mindfulness meditation uh, groups with the psychologist. And after discharge of the hospital, those who were interested could continue uh, to go to those uh, mindfulness meditation uh, groups. And so back then I didn't have much, I didn't know what it involved. Uh, I think I was myself still very in a theoretical mood and I was reading about it, but really practicing meditation back then I wasn't doing that. Um, and then um, I, uh, I also um, worked in another ward, which was very, where uh, it was a very diverse group of patients of suffering from very diverse uh, problems. And there, uh, they, we would also uh, there would also be um, mindfulness meditation. But uh, it was said that people who suffer from psychotic disorders should not do mindfulness. Uh, that's an exclusion criteria. So people who have had psychosis should not go into mindfulness. And so that was one thing. And so I, I you know, as a still uh, a young doctor, I was like, okay, I, if they say it's bad, then we shouldn't do it. It's dangerous for those people. And it was said it could increase their psychotic uh, symptoms. So back then we already talked about uh, this kind of problems. So people with psychotic problems would be excluded from um, those mindfulness meditation groups um, with a reason, because we didn't want them to become uh, more psychotic. Um, and then on the other hand, that was also around the time that I met the um, the Tibetan uh, guru that we talked about uh, last time. Uh, the, and um, I was quite startled because I read everywhere that you know, meditation should be for everyone and everybody can meditate. And on the other hand, I heard, you know, and I saw in, in those hospitals where I was working, okay, no, it's not for everyone. Certain people should not meditate because it's going to create some problems for them. So I asked him, that was one of the, you know, the, the most important question that I asked him. And I asked him, uh, what do you think of that? Because there are certain people who suffer from psychotic problems or who have a psychotic, you know, sensitivity could become psychotic because it runs in the family and things like that. Um, and, and on the other hand, uh, you guys, you Buddhist practitioners, uh, you say that everyone can do it. And, um, and so he understood what I meant by psychosis because in Tibetan, I think they use different words. So I had to explain in detail what I was talking about. And then he said, oh yeah, yeah, of course they have psychotic people in Tibet too. And so he, he understood what I was talking about. And, um, and then he said, yes, um, everybody can meditate, but uh, we should give the appropriate meditation to the appropriate person. 
And then he gave me the, the advice. He said, you should learn to meditate. And so that's how I started to, to, to practice meditation uh, after his advice. Um, took some time to, you know, to come into my mind and that I would decide to do it. But it was really him who said, you should meditate, learn how it works. And then uh, you should teach meditation to your patients. And, um, and I thought back then, I was like, oh, how can I ever teach meditation? I, I don't know anything about it. Um, but then uh, I started to work as a psychiatrist. So when I graduated as a psychiatrist, I started to work only with people who suffer from uh, psychotic disorders, be it schizophrenia or bipolar disorders, schizoaffective disorders, so people who have psychotic tendencies. Um, and uh, and so, of course, yeah, mindfulness meditation is not for those people. Um, and, uh, and so I was a little bit, you know, I, I didn't really know how to start doing this. Um, and then I think two years later or something, I uh, went to um, a talk, a lecture given by Mathieu Ricard. I don't know if you know Mathieu Ricard the French uh, Buddhist monk who is also, um, uh, he's by, by, um, he has a degree of uh, biology. He did a PhD in biology a long time ago and then became a Buddhist monk when to moved to the Himalayas. But he still comes to France and Belgium uh, a few times per year. Uh, and then he gives lectures and he has written books and I've read his books and, and so he went to give a lecture and after the lecture, I went and talked to him and I asked him the same question. What do you think about meditation for people who suffer from psychotic problems? And he actually answered the same. He said, you know, learn to meditate and uh, try to find out which type of meditation goes for your patients and start meditating with your patients because meditation can work for people with um, psychotic uh, illness, but uh, we should find the right way to do it and so in the end after you know a few years i started to meditate and i learned meditation and i started to understand um certain things uh and uh i, I don't think i am a very great meditator i'm still see myself as a sort of beginner's level meditation but um uh, I, I, and I didn't take the, the training of mindfulness because my patients cannot take the mindfulness uh, type of meditation. It's an exclusion criterion. So I, I started to learn, uh, you know, Buddhist meditation practices. And then I, uh, um, a few years ago, I think five, six years ago, I decided to try it out with my patients um, in a very, you know, low level, low key way. And uh, actually, uh, I just had a talk today with one of my patients who has been meditating from the start with me. And she told me how helpful it was for her, how it really helped to get her because she has been with time gradually getting better. Of course, she still has psychotic breakdowns. And when she has a psychotic breakdown, she says, I'm not capable of meditating. So I stopped for two months or something. And then when she recovers, she feels the need to meditate again. And it's so helpful for her to find some peace of mind to distance herself from the from the emotions that go with the psychotic breakdown. You know, when she's psychotic, she becomes so scared and so afraid and she's so fearful that everybody is going to reject her and that the devil is coming to uh, attack her. Um, and so and she says that 
thanks to this meditation, see, she finds more peace. And, uh, and she, the fact that she can do it freely whenever she wants to, and she always does no more than 10 minutes, um, uh, she, she, she really craves to her moments of meditation. Uh, and so for her, she says it's, it's, it was so helpful. Uh, so to me, meditation can really help people, but it needs to be done in a very specific way for her. For example, one of her first symptoms when she's going down is that she's getting a lack of sleep. And so uh, when she starts to have trouble sleeping, I will not tell her to meditate. I will start, you know, try to give her sleeping pills to recover her sleep first. Because if she lacks too much sleep, then her psychotic symptoms, they just shoot off. And, 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 and then we are gone for a month or two or three where she is not in a good, um, a good state. But those, it seems like those, those, those episodes have started to you know, be further apart and less intense than in the past. In the past, her psychotic symptoms were very intense. Uh, that sometimes became so intense that the wish of committing suicide was very high and so she would do suicide attempts and she would swallow uh, a lot of um, uh, pills uh, like benzodiazepines uh, and, and so she, she, she has had some serious suicide attempts and now the last year she has not done any suicide attempt anymore and she says that one of the reasons why she doesn't think of suicide anymore is thanks to the, the meditation. Of course, it's not the panacea. It's not going to save her from all her problems. She still needs to face her problems, um, but she finds a better and more powerful energy to be able to confront her difficult emotions, to confront her problems and to, to cope with them. So she says it's a very, very powerful tool. And it has also, she is a very Christian person. Um, she is absolutely not Buddhist. Um, and so it doesn't have to do, for me, it shouldn't be, you know, one or another religion. But for her, she says that it has also made her um, spiritual practice more powerful. She has, she said that in the past, she would just label herself as a Christian and that's it. But now when she prays, she feels a more strong connection with, I don't know, she, she says she cannot name it. But she says it's also for that, that she finds more, she said she finds an inner peace thanks to the meditation um, and the fact that she can do it with, with me in our hospital where we are very aware of the risks of meditation, uh, she feels very safe. I feel very safe too because I say to my patients, if you don't feel well, we just talk and we do something else. Uh, you go for a walk, you go, you do some, you go visit friends or whatever, but um, I really don't want people to persevere when they don't feel well, when the voices are starting to get, you know, get worse or things like that. So um, in, in the discussion I had with her, I, I know she, she, I'm talking a little bit about her because she doesn't speak English, but I know if she could, she would love to come and talk about her experiences. Um, and uh, she, she, um, Okay, what was I going to say now? Yes, she told me that um, when she's too much isolated, and that's what we see with sensory deprivation, when she's too much isolated uh, and she doesn't get enough sleep, so sleep deprivation is a risk factor for psychosis. When those two things combine, uh, and she, when the fear increases, fear of losing someone, fear of because she has had a, had a fight with someone or an argument, or then all her 
problems arise and they take the form of psychotic symptoms. And so it's, it's, um, she, it's, it's like, it, and it's true, sleep deprivation, sensory deprivation is a risk factor for psychosis and we all become psychotic if we completely um, get uh, sensory deprived. At one point, we will all be psychotic. They have done some experiments like that in the past. Um, so I already sort of knew from my clinical practice that we need to be aware for people with psychosis. And thanks to this encouragement by that um, uh, Tibetan uh, monk and by Mathieu Ricard, I at one point dared to uh, start meditating with my patients because it was said, don't meditate with psychotic patients. Well, I've been doing this and it's working really well. And then meanwhile, I've started to read uh, indeed the articles by um, Willoughby Britton, what's her name? I, I, I have a hard time remembering her first name, but uh, I've, I've read her, her, her articles and I've listened to some talks of her and, and I'm very happy that it's now talked about because that's what we saw in clinical practice. And it was sort of like a subject we could not, we could only talk about the positive effects. Um, and and, and they, are, they are side effects. And, um, and, um, and I think the other way around of saying we exclude all the people with you know, mental health issues or who have some risk factors of becoming a psychotic, they are not allowed into retreats. I've had uh, one of my patients who said for her, it's very hurtful to, to be excluded from, uh, from meditation retreats because of her uh, mental health issues uh, in the past. And she says that, you know, it's like I'm excluded again because there's a big stigma on people who suffer from mental illness. And if even in, in meditation retreats, they are being again uh, pushed away and excluded um, it's it's a uh, it's a pity because it can be helpful for them but we should find the correct uh, meditations because it can be very powerful and very helpful for everyone indeed now i know <laughs> in the past i didn't know i was a little afraid to do that but now that we've been doing this uh, uh, and i'm talking about this one patient today but i have a few patients uh, who, who, uh, who really, every time we meditate, they are so, for them, it's so, it's so, it's so they're so happy to know about it, to, to be able to do it. Um, and they feel by themselves when their psychosis goes too much, it becomes too much, then they stop meditating for a while and then they take a, they start again after a while. Uh, and like that, they feel very safe doing it. And I feel safe, you know, teaching them uh, meditation in in uh, in such a way. Mm -hmm. Wow, very interesting indeed. Lots of questions coming from what you've said. But one to begin with, you mentioned that you consider yourself to be still a beginner in yeah. meditation. I'm wondering what your criteria for evaluation are. I don't know. I don't have enough time to you know formally sit and meditate. Uh, Every day uh, for an hour, I've been doing that uh, in the beginning for a few years, but now my life is so busy with all other things is that I don't have this, you know, this part where I, where I go and I sit and I meditate for, for an hour. Uh, I do this when I, when I, I feel like, uh, when I feel I have the time, um, but I don't want to pressure myself into doing this anymore. And uh, to be really honest, uh, the meditations I've been doing was first the shamatha meditation, and then I've been doing the gondro meditation. And I, I'm not, I don't feel 
ready enough to go further than than that. Um, maybe I should, I don't know, but but uh, uh, I think they are so powerful already. Those gondro those gondro uh, meditations. I also really love the part where you do the prostrations because I, I have problem. I don't do enough physical movements, but I think this idea of including the body into the meditation practice that it's not separating the mind and the body in, 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 in doing uh, physical movement, I think it's uh, very powerful because we live in a, in a world where we are too disconnected from our body and I can speak about it because I am too disconnected from my body. And so that's why I believe this Gondra meditation is, is, uh, is already so powerful and very profound also. Um, so that's why I say I'm into the, I'm still at the beginner's level uh, type of meditation. <laughs> because of, because you're not able to do it very much. And in the schema of Tibetan Buddhism, you're in the lower ranks uh, of, yeah. of, of, of yeah, shamatha and ngundro, yeah. often seen yeah. as foundational practices. I mean, literally preliminary. Uh, yeah. yeah, the preliminary practices. But then I think again, I also believe I could start doing more, but I think I really want to have a good foundation because uh, I, when I hear about you know other higher level meditations, of course I hope one day I can do those. But um, then I also know of the risk because I see people having you know problems when I uh, and I can understand where those problems come from when, when you visualize yourself as a Buddha and you have a psychotic you know um, a psychotic uh, sensitivity then you really start to believe you are like a god and I have many patients who believe they are gods and I think I have many gods in my <laughs> in my practice and I don't want you know of course, myself for myself, I know I shouldn't be afraid, but it's because I see so many people who, 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 who do develop problems and who can have, you know, manic decompensations from different type of way of, of meditating. Or when I hear people doing dark retreats, I'm holding my heart. I'm like, oh my god, um, are they going to be okay? Because in a dark retreat, of course, they're going to hallucinate. Um, and are we ready to hallucinate? Because it can be very scary and we should be very careful that we have a good foundation before we go into those kind of things. Um, so I first want to have a very, very, very good foundation. Uh, although I did the one week uh, gondol retreat uh, on my own and, and I did it you know, for a week on my own and I was all alone, but still I have the impression that I, I shouldn't, I should take my time anyways. So, yeah, that's very interesting. That's the one week Nundra retreat of the Utik Nitik, yes, which is uh, quite um, unusually short compared to many other of the other Nundras involving hundreds of thousands of this and hundreds of thousands of that. It's it's condensed in the Utik Nitik. Yeah, very interesting. Um, yes. So that's very interesting. So of course you're familiar with the advanced practices, at least conceptually, theoretically, uh, if not practically. So you've mentioned there visualization of oneself or presumably visualization in general of, of beings, etc. whether, whether you, you yourself become that being or not as being uh, possibly uh, uh, courting danger for someone with psych, uh, psychotic sensitivities. I wonder what other of the other meditation practices and styles that you're aware of, what do you see similar pitfalls 
Are there other uh, practices that you think, hmm, uh, this one could uh, lead to that, or I see some uh, possible pitfalls here. Uh, I'm wondering if, as we survey the range of meditation approaches, at least the ones that you're aware of, if you see other, other uh, danger zones. Well, I would also say that uh, certain meditations could also, again, when you visualize yourself as, as, a, as a Buddha or, or, or so, that you, your ego starts to increase. Well, we could say that about any meditation. People who say, I've meditated so many hours, and, and so they start to believe that they have a very high level of, of, uh, of practice. So that could be basically even Gondro. Um, but then again, people who say, oh, I've been on, um, I'm doing a Mahamudra practitioner or Jokshan or whatever, that, you know, I would say then the risk is that people's ego is going to, you know, start to grow very much. And that can also become an obstacle and a problem. Um, and then, um, yeah, I would say that, well, is that a psychiatric diagnosis? Not really, but it can become a problem if it turns into, you know, or someone has a tendency for personality disorder, it can just increase this tendency. Um, and, 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 and another thing that I have been experiencing when I went to retreats uh, before the pandemic is uh, I would see many people who had a history of trauma. Uh, and uh, so trauma, uh, I think it's, it should be, we should be careful because meditation, you start confronting yourself with your emotions. And if you have an unresolved trauma, it can make things worse. It can make these traumatic side effects even worse. Uh, it can trigger, so for example, people who have been victim of sexual abuse, going to certain types of uh, meditation could just you know, increase um, those, those traumatic symptoms of, uh, you know, of destabilizing the person again, although the person had found some sort of stability in his or her life. Uh, you know, when you start looking at your emotions and, and, and you know, scanning your body and, and you know, tra trauma can, can, can be triggered again. So we should be very careful. Of course, I'm not saying people with a traumatic past should not meditate, but the person who teaches the meditation should be aware that there might be a risk of, of, um, of having, of triggering uh, traumatic uh, experiences again and so be, be careful on, on how to deal with that and and to help that person go through those phases because I for me dealing with trauma um, we need at one point will be necessary if we are ready we need to be ready uh, and, and, and um, because I have I have many patients with traumatic uh, traumatic past some of them are not ready to to cope with it it's too too hard for them and we need to respect that. And for those people going into meditation right away, doing vipassana retreats or something like that, I think it's very dangerous. Um, and and uh, other people are ready to to confront their traumatic past, and they and they and they wish they wish to look at it once and for all, and really do something about it, and take the risk of feeling because it's very uncomfortable dealing with this. And then for them, meditation will, will, will help. But then again, I think it, it's necessary that the teacher is aware that meditation can trigger some uncomfortable emotions. And we should know that it, it's not all about you know, wellness and well-being. If, if we have uncomfortable emotions inside of us, they will come out during the meditation. And we need to know that. And it's not, I think it's the association of meditation and wellness that kind of 
that I that I you know think is it's not such a good idea because when people start to honestly look at themselves, then 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 it might trigger um, you know they, and they are not expecting that and then and then they would say oh I had this negative effect but everybody else is so positive about meditation so there's something wrong with me I have a problem and so they start losing self-confidence and I think meditation should be about increasing self-confidence um, so I think when people start meditation practices we should tell them you know it's good that you are starting to meditate but be aware that it might sometimes be very uncomfortable and not always very easy um, uh, and, and that it's normal and if it becomes too much then to you know hold off a little bit and, and, and take things more more slowly um, so I really think it's also about intensity of meditation about um, not you know still having a healthy uh, lifestyle not taking sleeping hours away from from uh, from the meditation I must admit when I did uh, those uh, shamatha practices um, the teacher we had he would say well you should meditate first one hour per day then two hours per day and then three hours per day so for people with very perfectionist lifestyles you know they would feel guilty if they wouldn't come to those three hours or four hours and then, and then if we would say, well, you know, we have a life and we don't have time. And then they would say, well, then you just sleep less and because sleep is useless anyways. I think that's very dangerous, um, this type of, uh, of, of, of talking because, uh, and then people want to do things perfectly. And then they, especially the perfectionist people, <laughs> you know, the, or the people with OCD kind of type of patient, of, of people, sorry. Um, and then and people who tend to be quite rigid, um, I think we should be very careful that, you know, in today's world, well, maybe four hours a day for most of us, especially if we have families, a job, um, might not always be very realistic and we need to sleep first. We shouldn't take our sleeping time out. So I would say that those higher level uh, tantric meditations, I would do them if there is a good basis of the preliminaries and people with psychotic um, tendencies uh, should maybe just remain in the preliminary tendencies and again, not too much, but for anyone else, um, I would say, even though we say, oh, I don't have any psychiatric problem. Well, we can develop psychiatric issues. We never know, we are never sure. Um, and we should be aware that we still have, get enough sleep, that we still stay grounded in 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 in, in, in reality, um, that we eat healthy. Um, we we shouldn't and we shouldn't start thinking that we can do with all without this because we are human beings. We are physical bodies. That's what the gondra is also about. It's about physicality, and we need to take care of the body too, not only the mind but also the body. Uh, and, and they are interconnected very strongly, right? Um, so, yeah, and then the, another problem that I find, and that would be with any meditation too, is that many people who go to retreats, retreats, um, they have some tendency of doing some spiritual bypass, right? They already have all kinds of issues. They refuse to go and seek help uh, to either psychologists, counselors, or even psychiatrists. Uh, they believe that, you know, their issues will be solved if they just meditate and that's it. Um, 
and and we should be careful because that's also running away from our problems and we shouldn't do meditations to run away from our problems but just to face them and 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 try to to transform them right that's what the tantric buddhism is about is about transforming um emotions but before we can transform them we need to recognize they are there first um i don't know if that answers your question yes it does yeah well you're, you're pointing to some interesting many interesting things of course sleep deprivation is a feature of many meditation retreats and it's not uncommon for meditation teachers to claim they don't need to sleep much or much at all i recently um met a meditation teacher who claimed to sleep two three hours a night um and as a as a consequence of his level of enlightenment and this was somebody in the uh tibetan buddhist tradition for example a recognized um lama right sleeps two three hours a night because of the level of um his spiritual explicitly he said it was because of the level level of his spiritual attainment that he was able to do that and that many other of his colleagues were in a similar position um, um of course m sleep deprivation is used in not only in tibetan buddhism but in zen they have uh, all night sitting yaza right uh, where one sits in certain zen traditions in monastic context on the full moon and the uh, new moon uh, all night sometimes you know uh, they, they do that and and that's something that's seen often in retreats all night vigils, I think, are also something one sees in the Christian tradition and the other Abrahamic faiths. Often there's an all, an all night, a sense of an all night um, courting of spiritual epiphany, perhaps, or spiritual experience or intimacy with God or whatever the case may be. But you're also saying there's some dangers there. So I'm curious, maybe if you could be quite specific about that. And the other thing that I'm curious about is that you you mentioned there you tell your patients that if they feel uncomfortable and they want to stop they should uh, if they feel uncomfortable they should stop or back off it's also the case in certain meditation schools that discomfort is seen as a necessary part of the path of of advancement i think of for instance the um uh, the stages of insight presented in in theravadan buddhism one goes through certain challenges or m most uh, meditation schools have this idea of purification or of uh, you know facing difficulty facing emotions so very often the advice is um to quote churchill and of course he wasn't talking about meditation but is if you're going through hell keep going maybe even meditate more break through the uh the difficulty etc this is good this is progress and and um continue and you're also it seems a little saying something a little different to that so in those two instances of encountering negative feeling uh, of some sort discomfort uh, emotional psychological physical maybe but certainly in the psychological discomfort distress um keep going or back off i'm wondering what you, your thoughts are on that and also this idea of uh lack of sleep or uh, used in in retreats or indeed being a sign of spiritual attainment well, I would say meditation is, is like anything else. It's like, for example, you can compare it to diet. If you want to change your diet and you change from one day to another, it can bring some problems. And uh, it's much better to go gradually. You know, if you want to become a vegetarian, a vegan, you first become a vegetarian and you go slowly, right? And by doing this, your body has been used to eat meat and, and, and dairy products for a long time. 
And so we need to, to do things gradually. Uh, otherwise we can just get into health problems, physical health problems. If from one day to the next, we start becoming vegan uh, and that's it. Um, and then I think for meditation, it's the same thing. We should go gradually. We haven't done that before. Uh, and if we suddenly start to do intensive uh, meditation and having some sleep deprivation with that, then we can have a full-blown uh, psychosis. And in, of course, not everyone will have it, but and, and then it is said, well, those people are the ones who didn't do it well enough. I think those are the people who did it the best. <laughs> they followed the best advice and then they, they got psychotic and so they shouldn't be criti criticized by that. So I think very advanced level people who have a very good foundation. So that's why I think this foundation is so important and that all those Buddhist teachers, they, they, they stress, well, the teaching stress, have a good foundation, the preliminaries. Um, and, and, uh, and, and, and so that's why I like the Yutoknintik uh, ones who says one week is fine. Uh, and then after one week, actually what happens is that I feel that I want to continue doing this. Uh, whether before I wanted to do the 100,000, uh, you know, prostrations and things like that. And it became some, you know, an obligation. And so I should do as many prostrations today and then feeling bad about it when you don't do it. And so, um, but I think in any case, we should have a good foundation first and, and gradually uh, go uh, through it. And then when at, at one point, for example, let's say at one point we're ready to go for a dark retreat. Uh, I think we need to have an amazing foundation before we go to a dark retreat. And then having a very good teacher who really knows all the risks involved in it, then I think we can just go through the hell that, you know, if we arrive in hell that we see uh, hell and it becomes very difficult that we just know and we have enough trust in the teacher and enough trust in the practice and enough trust in ourselves for having done all those practices before to just continue doing that. But most of the people, when they go to those Vipassana retreats, for example, they don't have enough foundations. And then when those psychotic symptoms appear, hallucinations or things like that, it becomes so scary that it actually does more harm than good. And if we then tell those people just continue, they are not ready to continue. It's better to just back off and take it at a lower level first and build up foundations more again. And then in a later stadium, uh, they might be ready to, 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 to do those retreats uh, again. But at that moment, it's too early. Um, I have another patient uh, who is from Asian origin uh, in, uh, I've known him for, I don't know, six, seven years now. Uh, he's about my age, but he became, I, I, not so long ago, we talked about his past and how he became uh, psychotic and how he developed schizophrenia. In fact, he told me his mother, when he was um, 16, 17 years, she thought that it would be great for him to uh, become a monk too, because he was the youngest, the other children had already, uh, done very nice studies and so she thought my youngest son he is going to become a monk and so she sent him off to a monastery uh, and where he would learn you know where he would study of course uh, but he would also have to meditate and there would be a lot of sleep deprivation and it was so hard for him that uh, he became uh, schizophrenic there he became he had his first psychosis there and still today when he talks about it he has tears in his eyes because 
it was really, really hard for him. And then the, the, the main teacher would, instead of telling him, you know, just take it more slowly, he would say, you should meditate more and you should do more and you should do more. And then his, you know, his hallucinations would just increase, increase, increase and become more and more and more scary. And at one point, after three, four years, he was kicked out saying you're crazy you are not uh, you're not meant for here and so now and then he was sent back to his mother and now by his family he's considered as a failure i think it's everybody else who has been a failure to him because they and, and it's true he still hears voices today whenever there is stress the voices come back and so instead of telling me i i, I am stressed he tells me i hear more voices then i know there is more stress in his life. And then I start asking him what happens right now. And the poor guy has not been able to find a job. He's living on social security. Um, he still lives with his mom and his brothers consider him as, as a failure. Um, and, and I feel so bad for him because he doesn't deserve that. He really tried to do his best. His teacher told him, do more, do more, do more, go through hell as you're saying but he was not ready at that point to go through that hell because he didn't have enough foundations and, and it, it broke him on a, on a mental level. And so now he needs to take medication and he's, you know, he, he's followed by, by us, by me, by, by um, psychiatric teams and everything. Um, and, and, and he feels like he's a failure and everybody else in his environment considers him as a failure. And I think that's a pity and that could be really avoided. Yes, that's very, that's very unfortunate indeed. I wonder if it's worth being specific about sleep deprivation and its, its risks. To you, I, I know it's second nature, that fact, that sleep deprivation is, um, is high-risk activity for anyone with a history of psychosis, bipolar, manic episodes, etc., but also can induce new ones uh, yeah. in, in those. And you, you're rolling the dice, really, if you engage in that kind of thing. Um, you don't know if you're going to be one of the unlucky ones in that sense. W would you perhaps say something about sleep deprivation and its role in terms of mental health? Well, uh, yes, uh, I think sleep is one of the most important symptoms. Well, or, or most of mental health issues turn around sleep. Sleep is part of it. Um, as you say, uh, people with bipolar disorder, for example, when I have people who are stable, so bipolar disorder, they have manic episodes, they have depressive episodes, and they have, episodes, they have moments where there are no episodes, they are just functioning, functioning normally like anyone else. Um, but when they are having, they start to have a manic episode, uh, the first symptom in, in the beginning, they don't realize it. It's because now, well, of course, we know as, as mental health workers, we know that sleep is an important uh, symptom to look after. Um, one of the first things I ask is, how is your sleep? And, um, and the thing is that when they, they, they start to say, okay, I, uh, I sleep less, but I feel perfectly fine, but I sleep less. I sleep two hours less or three hours less than normal. And I ask, how long has that been? Oh, for a week, and I feel so energized. I say, uh oh, you know, watch out because that's the beginning. And then the other symptoms will come later. But the first symptom is usually uh, sleep. And I think it's because, you know, people get sleep deprived. 
and when we get sleep, of course, for us, for example, for me, I don't have any mental health issues. Well, I hope so. <laughs> but if I, you know, if I pull a, an all nighter and I don't sleep for a whole night, I will be tired the next day, and that's okay. It doesn't um, it will not affect me? Of course, if I start doing this very regularly, I might become, I might get problems. Uh, because it will affect my memory. Uh, it's it's actually even said that people with with um, uh, dementia, with Alzheimer's disease, that's probably this, as a culture we have we are sleep deprived. Uh, compared to a hundred years ago, I think on average we sleep two or three hours less. Uh, I don't know exactly how much, but we definitely all of us on average sleep much less than than a hundred years ago, and so it's affecting our health, our learning, our memory is is uh, our mood is also affected by it. So it affects uh, concentration, mood, um, and uh, for sensitive people, it can induce. Uh, well, of course, the bipolar patients it induces manic episodes. So what I tell my my bipolar patients is. You can do whatever you want, but please get enough sleep. <laughs> so, um, because sometimes people believe, oh, I cannot drink any alcohol. I tell them, well, yeah, you can drink one or two glasses of alcohol once in a while. That's no problem. But please get enough sleep. Uh, that's so much more important than than um, than the alcohol. Of course, yeah, you don't want people to also get an alcohol addiction. That's another uh, question. But but, and so sometimes I have patients who come to me bipolar patients uh, who now know, okay, I need to watch my sleep and they tell me I, I, I sleep less and I have more energy. And then the first thing I do is I don't do anything else except giving sleep, sleeping pills for, for a week or two weeks, just for the time being. And when we do that, they get enough sleep uh, again and the manic episodes will not come. So it avoids having uh, a manic episode. So, so a lack of sleep, sleep deprivation can induce manic episodes, even in people who never had manic episodes before. In fact, the, the, the biggest risk factor for um, having, having manic episodes too, even though you never had them before, is if in the family there is mental health problems. If in, if in your family there is someone, an uncle, an aunt, grandparent, parent, whatever, who has bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, then you should be very careful with your sleep, even if you have never had uh, episodes before, because that means you have a genetic constitution with, which makes that it can be induced. Um, so, so, so sleeping is, is really important. Even in depression, uh, that's one of the main symptoms of depression. And some psychiatrists even say that depression is a sleeping disorder. So people with depression, they, they feel tired all the time, but they can't sleep well. They have a hard time falling asleep. They wake up several times during the night and they have early morning waking. So they wake up earlier than, than usual and they cannot sleep again. So there is really, I mean, I don't know, I don't know of a mental illness where sleep is not affected. Um, and, and so if we have, um, if our sleep is disturbed, it's really a risk factor for having uh, issues. Um, and so for me, it's really, especially when we start meditating, we are not ready to, to be sleep deprived. Maybe if we have many, many years of meditation experience and we have been meditating at retreats and, and, and taken time off to do all those things, then maybe yes, and, and still we need to do that in accordance with our, what, our teach, how, what our, our teacher is saying, what our teacher feels is good for us. And so we need to have a good trust in our teacher. Um, and if the teacher says, please get enough sleep, 
then we should do it. Um, but 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 trying to you know take the risk of getting sleep deprived, I think it's it's not worth it. Um, we need we need first being very balanced. Our health need to be very balanced, and then maybe. Uh, and even I don't even see the point in in forcing oneself to sleep less. We are you, we are bodies. We need time to rest. We need time to recover. Our body needs time to recover. Our brains need time to recover. So why would we not do that? Um, I, I don't see the point in in depriving ourselves, except for making money for Netflix or social media because we spend more time on, you know. <laughs> but otherwise, as a society, I don't see I don't see the point in in uh, in sleeping less. Um, if we need to sleep, we need to sleep, and that's it. Uh, like we need to eat. I don't know anyone who who can live without eating. Um, it's the same thing. Sleep is as important as as eating. Well, thank you very much for that. You know, you you're able to pull an all nighter every now and then if you have to, uh, and so long as you don't do it too much, or presumably if if there aren't that you know too many other stress factors going on, etc., you'll you'll bounce back from that okay. And indeed, it is the case that people engage in extreme meditation practices or very intense meditation practices, indeed, even visualizing themselves as other beings and engaging in all that sort of thing. And uh, some people can do it, some people can't, etc. And uh, you've mentioned also a history of mental illness in the family as being, as being one thing to bear in mind. So I'm curious, let's say a person you know, wants to know, what should I watch out for? I'm enjoying meditation. I'm progressing through a system like the Utogni Intig, et cetera, with its various different next levels that one progresses through towards enlightenment. I want to do a lot of it. I'm really passionate about it and so on. Or I want to do an all-night meditation, or I want to meditate four hours a day. I'm really getting into it or so. You've mentioned a history of mental illness should be something that one should give one pause. What other sorts of things uh, should one watch out for? when engaging in large amounts of or or extreme amount you know extreme types perhaps of of meditation practice well i would say just go gradually don't start to do extreme meditation uh, many hours a day suddenly uh, i think it's better to build it up um, and and take time there is no pressure in you know there shouldn't be a limit by then i need to have meditated as many hours and uh, I don't think that's 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 very helpful. I think it's much better to say, okay, I take the time I need, and that's also learning to listen to myself and finding the balance between not being lazy and not meditating and, and meditating enough, but not too much. So finding the balance, and that might be different from one person to another. So it's also learning about ourselves. Where are my limits? Where Until where can I go? And maybe my limits today are not going to be the same as my limits in five years from now. So I need to accept those limits. We are not limitless beings, at least when we start. Um, and, uh, and then just gradually go. Um, what I would say is when people start to sleep less um, and they feel uh, more energized in the daytime, although they sleep less, for me, that's an alarm signal. That's something we should be very, very careful about. And the problem is, that when people are already in that stage, they think it's so amazing, they don't listen anymore. <laughs> and they say, they, 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 they don't want to listen to us who say, because then they say, well, 
some of them will think that they are somehow already enlightened or something and so that they know better than the others when we think we know better than the others there is a problem too we never know better than other people um i think we should always uh, you know we we just i think when we start to feel above other people i i think then we are on the wrong on the wrong issue that that's you know you are you're bringing together all the symptoms of men of mania mania is a mental health issue it's not enlightenment i think that's the really enlightened beings that have been walking around in this world like let's say i don't know the dalai lama his holiness the dalai lama i don't think he's manic right <laughs> he's not saying i'm better than other people i know more he's very humble um and that's why he's an example uh, of someone to follow um because he remains very humble and he uh, i believe that he he does sleep uh, although he's probably much more advanced than most of us so why would we be better than someone as his holiness dalai lama or um whoever else uh i think um you know very wise people they are not showing off they are not saying i am better than other people because when that happens then it just makes people run away if you are putting yourself above other people um so we should be careful because then it's also we are inflating our ego right if we think we know better than others then we get that you know we we start to believe that we have special powers and and all those things well i hear people with special powers every day um in my practice uh, they all have special powers uh, my patients with uh, psychotic uh, symptoms well or not all of them but many of them have special powers and and that no one else has and well yeah the thing is they are mentally ill and they're struggling so we should be very careful um uh and and, and mania is dangerous people can commit suicide when they are manic uh people can put themselves into danger when they are manic because suddenly they believe they can fly and they will jump off the window and they'll die like that um because they believe they could fly and they couldn't of course so we should be uh so when we start feeling we have more energy and we feel so good and we don't need sleep i think we should watch out and we should um find a way to 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 sleep anyways because our body needs to sleep um but sleeping is a complicated issue because on the other hand certain people are insomniacs right uh they 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 go to sleep and they can't fall asleep and then they think i need to sleep i need to sleep and the more you think i need to sleep the the less you sleep uh so that's also something um that's a challenge but an insomniac will be tired in the daytime he will feel that you know he is he has had trouble sleeping last night and because of that he doesn't have enough energy he's tired he wants to sleep and he just can't fall asleep so it's different than from someone who is starting to becoming uh to have a manic episodes uh, people who start having manic episodes they will not be tired they will be full of energy and start you know and and they also tell me that they're they feel they, in their brains that their ideas are starting to to run wild they start having many ideas and they start having many projects and then they will start taking uh, uh drawing lessons and then by I've had once a patient who bought a castle in two Porsches and one dog on the same day. <laughs> so, you know, so they they start having all those ideas and I'm rich and I'm great and I'm powerful and well, we need to watch out when because at one point it's becoming 
off of completely off of reality and other people cannot bring you back into reality and that's where psychiatrists need to intervene and, and hospitalize you and uh, and, and hospitalizations are never fun for anyone. Um, so um, I think, uh, yeah. And then another risk factor but that has not much to do with, with uh, sleep, but it's um, drugs, cannabis. Cannabis uh, is also, many people say it's safe. And, and, and when I you know, watch documentaries about about uh, about cannabis and about um, all those things. It's always about the, the great things it does on people's health. Well, yeah, again, it, 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 it's helpful for chronic pain problems and things like that. But um, recreational drugs for people whose family members have mental health issues, they should be very careful because they might have the same genes. And for those people, uh, cannabis will trigger um, uh, might trigger uh, mental health issues, especially if they are starting to sleep deprive themselves. So if you add all those circumstances together, you can, you know, you can create um, uh, all those, those, those problems. Of course, a good thing about retreats is that usually you can't take drugs when you are at, at a retreat. So that's a good thing, but still we should be careful uh, with drugs. Drugs is not harmless. Again, it's a question of who takes it, and what doses if he takes it and one person will have no problems and take a lot of drugs and other people uh, will take a small amount and it will trigger um, problems. So it's very individually um, different, but we know that uh, if you take drugs, if there's mental health issues in your family, if you have a history of trauma where you felt yourself trauma, even you know for certain people being bullied in school is a trauma, or is traumatic, um, or parents who divorce, for certain people it's traumatic. If you add all those things together and then you start meditating, then you increase the risks of, of, of having uh, an episode. So those people, so now I'm really making the worst case scenario. If you have all those things together, then you are at high risk. Another adverse effect of meditation that's sometimes discussed I'm curious for your thoughts on this is depersonalization. Yeah. Um, the stated goal of certain meditation traditions is to recognize, of course, it's expressed differently. The word no self would be a great success um, and sought after in many traditions or recognizing that one isn't the small self, but the large self, Atman or so, you know, something like this. Depersonalization, perhaps charitably could be could be said to be a, a near enemy of realization of these spiritual uh, insights. It has been said that there is a risk in meditation practice of triggering depersonalization, falling into the pit of the void, it's sometimes called. So I'm curious what, what you think of that. If you think there are risks for that, if so, what to watch out for? Yeah. Could you say something a bit about the possibility, or perhaps it's not a possibility in your mind, of depersonalization? Well, actually, uh, depersonalization is a symptom of psychosis. Um, so uh, I, I hear people with psychosis who don't meditate. Um, and one of the things, one of the symptoms can be depersonalization is saying, I'm not really me. And even derealization, the reality is not really, it's not really real. I feel like in a movie or it's not really real. And when they talk like that, I can see in their eyes, their eyes are becoming like, I don't know, 
staring with no emotion, no expression, and like dark, psychotic eyes, like I would say. Um, and people who work in mental health, we recognize this gaze that those people have, um, and doesn't look very healthy. This type of gaze, I cannot, uh, I cannot, you know, show how it looks like because I don't have this in me. But we can recognize this from from people, uh, the, the the type of gaze that they have, and and then they will say, you know, I'm not really me. I think that's that type of thing, I suppose, that's not what the purpose is of, of uh, the no self of meditation. I think when we are in this situation, because there is some sort of, I don't know, some sort of fear that goes with it of saying, I'm not really me, uh, it's not really real. And then, of course, people will start to try to find explanations and then they will have some delusional ideas about it and say, uh, it's because uh, I'm taken over by an alien or uh, they'll have some kinds of explanations to try to explain or, or the, they put me in the matrix, you know, I'm not, it's not really reality, I see the matrix now. So they try to explain what's going, what's happening, what they experience. So uh, I think, yeah, we can, we can have this feeling of depersonalization, but I think when in meditation they talk about this no self, I think it's more the fact that it's more about this this feeling of, of um, interconnection, interdependence, that I, I am not a self independent of others, uh, that it's more like I'm interrelated with everyone else and I don't have an existence on my own. Um, I think it's not completely the same as, uh, but I might be wrong, of course, but uh, uh, of, of the depersonalization uh, that we describe in, in mental health. And I suppose when we say the risk of depersonalization, uh, I mean, it's probably this risk where we start to, to have this experience and then we try to find explanations for this because we always try to interpret what happens to us. That's also the job of our brain, right? Is to interpret reality as it is. Um, so we try to explain things. And so when we don't find a good explanation, we search for another one. And so maybe, and that's where the delusions come. Uh, and so where people start to have very bizarre explanations for, for their experiences. So um, I think it's also when we start to have some meditation experiences, it's also about, yeah, also understanding that we're being delusional too, and that we have, you know, that, that we are trying to explain with what we know with our limited capacities and, and this is delusion and that it's not really real, these delusions that we, it seems real, but it's not really real. Um, so uh, I, I, but I don't know because I don't have, I haven't had those experiences well myself. Although yeah, sometimes you can have in, in meditations so those short moments where you feel, you know, some sort of bliss and where there is no separation of me and the rest of the world. But I don't think that's what depersonalization is in a psychiatric way. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's different because. Yeah, it's not the same, but I don't know how to describe how it's not the same. Fair enough. Practices of deconstructing the self, the sense of self, rather. Deconstructing yeah. the sense of self. Uh, yeah, I'm curious uh, what you think of that sort of thing. And also practices, for instance, you mentioned this dreamlike derealization. Of course, as you know, uh, that's a practice, is to deliberately see things in a dreamlike way, or to ask yourself when waking, am I dreaming? Or, or even to say, this is a dream, um, this is a dream, etc. To try to blur the line between dream as we 
perhaps conventionally understand it, and awake. Yeah, but then again, for those practices, we already we need to have. Um, I think we first need to have an ego, right? We first to have a, um, an ego basis. I would not say a strong ego, but an ego, anyways, that we feel that we are some being which is separate from the rest. Because then, in, in that's that's something for a long time where I was, you know, I was startled because in Western psychology we say we need to help people get their ego get an ego a strong ego and help them build their ego and then in buddhist philosophy we say the other way around we need to deconstruct the ego and i was like oh my god what do we need to do because uh as, as a western psychologist a psychiatrist uh people with schizophrenia are often described as people who have a very weak ego a scattered mind schizophrenia means scattered minds a very weak ego i still have this example of this guy um who, when I would shake his hand, he told me he felt that my hand would become his and that he didn't know where his body ended and where mine started. And, 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 and many people with um, schizophrenia have this, they have a hard time feeling the limits of themselves. And so that's why you see many of them walking around in the summer with very big um, winter jackets. It's like 35 degrees outside okay celsius right <laughs> or 40 degrees and then they are, have those very big winter jackets and they are sweating like crazy and and then you wonder why in in, in people who don't know they say what's that crazy person walking like that on the streets in such such a heat wave and, and walking in and actually they do that because by sweating they feel the limits of their bodies so they try to find where my body stops where does my self sense of self stop and it's actually helpful for them for us it would not be helpful at all but for them it is so um i think and and they have had this type of personalities since a long time people we we actually know that schizophrenia the symptoms appear at an adult age usually but there are already some pre pre-morbid prodromal symptoms in childhood, but they are very general and we don't really, it can be anything. Um, so it's hard to, 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 to explain them, but, but and, and so the psychoanalysts, they say they don't have a strong ego. And so we need to help them get an ego. And then, uh, and, so, and so now I think it's a very useful way to say, if we want to deconstruct the ego, we first need to have one, <laughs> to know what it is to have an ego, a sense of self. Because if we don't know what it is, if we have a scattered mind, for example, it will be very difficult um, to, 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 to deconstruct it because we don't really, you know, we, everything is scattered and, and, and this ego helps us interpret the world where we live in and, and understand the world where we live in. But then by Buddhist practices, by meditation practices, where we start to deconstruct it and, and see the illusory nature of it, I think, but we first need to know that it's there and then understand that there is an illusory nature and that it won't disappear. It's, it's, it's still there. For example, a rainbow, we all know it's an illusion, but we still experience it, right? We all see the rainbow, but it has no, it has no nature that you can hold on to. And I think it's probably the same what, what is said about, about ourselves, about our ego. We, we experience a sense of self, but and probably through meditation, we learn to to see the illusory nature of it, but it still has a useful, 
a useful way to help us to, to, to function in the world. We need to have this sense of ego to, to be able to, to participate in, in this world. But it's, it's most of what we experience, it's interpretations of our brains. That's the function of our brain is to interpret reality, but we don't really see reality as it is. And, and through meditation, the idea is to really gradually start to, to help us to find the to see experience the reality as it is, but we still have those illusory experiences of, of ego and reality. And it's not that it all disappears once we understand reality, it's still there. So I think. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. Well, this has been so fascinating, Dr. Caroline. I wonder if we might change tack slightly. And you mentioned that Mathieu Ricard and your the Tibetan guru that you met and you had dinner with, we discussed him in, in the previous episode. They said to you, they answered your question of, is meditation appropriate for everybody or not? They answered your question saying, learn to meditate and then find the appropriate meditation for, for each situation. So I'm, I'm wondering, now we've talked about a lot about the dangers and, and so on. What have you found works well for your patients uh, what you know, what what has been the outcome of of this quest that was assigned to you by Mathieu Ricard and the Tibetan Guru to find the right technique for the right person? Well, for from for for me, from for me and for my patients, uh, I, I realized because when I started to meditate, I was you know writing down the hours I had been meditating and and trying to do as many hours every week, uh, and I, it it's um, it was good to help me start. Uh, but at one point it became a stress factor because when I wouldn't meditate because I didn't have time, I would feel bad about myself and lose my self-confidence. So then I thought, you know, and then I had some friends who, psychiatrist friends who took the, um, the training to become a mindfulness, to do mindfulness for doctors and then to be able to do this with, with their patients. And they told me the same thing because this, this training is eight weeks training and then they have to do homework every day. And um, for them, uh, it, it was a stress to do every day that many, I don't know, 45 minutes an hour of, of homework, of type of meditations, this and that. That It meant that after eight weeks, what happens is they gave up and they stopped uh, meditating and they didn't do it anymore, which is kind of sad, I think, because they missed on some on some things. And, and the only colleague psychiatrist I, I know who still uh, meditates. So he took the mindfulness training, but he has a lot of patients with anxiety disorders. So I think it's great. And so he does mindfulness with his patients with uh, anxiety disorders, but he's also a Buddhist practitioner. So, um, and, so I, and so he still continues to meditate, but I think it's really the spiritual practice behind it that, that helps him. So that's that's one thing that I found was complicated is like this, this rigid saying of this many hours. And so, and then for my patients, because I didn't want them to be stressed about this, because then I thought if they are going to be stressed about this, it will trigger psychotic symptoms. And I don't want to trigger psychotic symptoms. So when patients start with me to do meditations, um, I tell them to try to meditate every day, five minutes to start with to start with five minutes and to help them have an understanding of how much five minutes is i tell them you know take your your phone and put five minutes uh and then you take time for your yourself for five minutes uh, and then 
if they are used with two five minutes and they feel that it's you know they are getting used to doing that and I, I tell them you just try to do it every day but if it doesn't work every day you just don't do it it's okay if you want to do it twice five minutes or three times five minutes that's fine too but don't do more than five minutes to start with and we do mindful breathing um and and uh, so very simple uh very simple meditation and just that after a few weeks for all of my patients they tell me that it's really um it's it's really helpful so the thing is we meet once well once every five six weeks because unfortunately i cannot do it more than that but then we meet for more than an hour together um and then we first discuss on everyone's experience with a meditation and in the beginning you know i'm a doctor and as a doctor, we are not supposed to talk about spirituality. That's for the chaplains, right? Um, so I, I, I feel uncomfortable talking about spiritual practice. So I try to keep it very, in the beginning, at least I try to, to not talk about uh, religions and things like that. I said, oh, you need to go to a priest to talk about this. And also, you know, I have Christian uh, atheists and, and Muslim patients. I don't have Buddhist patients, uh, except that guy, uh, but he doesn't want to meditate ever again. So the Asian guy that I was talking about, but otherwise all my patients, they are not uh, Buddhist practitioners. Um, and I want also to respect everybody's beliefs. So I'm not, you know, in the beginning, I didn't want to talk about spiritual stuff, but actually, and so we discuss for 45 minutes and you should know that people with uh, uh, psychotic um, uh, sensitivities, they have a hard time being in group. They don't like to talk to other people. They feel scared to talk to other people. They don't interact much and they don't talk much when they are in group. And so, and what happens in the group I do the meditation in, it's the other way around. They started to talk. They start to ask each other questions. They interact and, and it's becoming very lively. And they themselves started to talk about spirituality. spirituality. So there is the Christian guy who says, yes, and I, I believe in God and this like that. The, the Muslim guy and, and, and then the agnostic guy who says, I don't know. And, and in fact, we end up, and in the beginning I felt uncomfortable doing this. And now I'm like, well, they want to, to talk about if they have this need of talking about it. So let's talk about it. So we talk about spirituality, whatever comes up, we discuss. And, um, and then at the end of the, of the, of the, of our discussion, then we meditate together for 10 minutes. And, um, and uh, I don't put them in, you know, we just sit on chairs. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't put candles or whatever. Um, and, and they feel comfortable because it's not too different from what their culture is, right? We have a sitting culture on chairs, we are not. And so I tell them, if you prefer to sit on the ground, you can, but none of them do. They, they prefer to sit on chairs. They feel more comfortable sitting in chairs. And then we talk, you know, we put the back straight. And, and, um, and so we've been doing that for, I don't know, four or five years now. Um, and uh, they really enjoy this and they really look forward to those meetings. And the idea is also, even if they haven't meditated, it's okay, they are still welcome to the, to the meeting. Uh, and so sometimes they are too sick, they, are, they have too many symptoms and one will not show up for a while and then come back. Um, 
And, and so it's very open and, and, and there is no pressure. And the fact that it's open and no pressure, and then once they are used with those five minutes, then I say, okay, now you can do 10 minutes or even longer. But as soon as you feel uncomfortable, you just stop. And so most of them are between 10 minutes and half an hour of meditation. Uh, and, and, and they tell me the feedback that I receive is that they, they love it. They wish that we could do this together every day. I say, yeah, me too, but uh, I don't have the possibility to do that. Um, but the, the fact that we meditate once in a while with a group and that we interact and talk about our experiences, the fact that they hear feedback from others, it's like, oh, yeah, maybe I'm not the only one who have this, have this experience. And so it gives more credibility to what their own experiences are. Uh, the fact that I don't put myself above them, I say I have those experiences too. It makes them very happy. For once, the doctor is not above them and the doctor is just a human being just like them. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, actually, in, 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 in the, the group that we started with, they keep coming. Now the struggle I have is to get other people join because the other people who they see that it's already a group that is functioning very well and they feel uncomfortable joining as a new one. So we try to, to find ways to include the new ones. Um, it works, but not all the time. And so um, that's, that's the most challenging thing I have, but they, they really, for them, for them, they, all of them say, um, that it's really helpful for, for, you know, that it really helps them with coping with their mental health issues. So I think that in the end, Mathieu Ricard and that uh, Tibetan monk were right, everybody can meditate, but we need to be careful with certain patients. It's like with medication, right? Um, medication does not work for everyone. Uh, it depends, you know, I need to give one medication to one person, another one in, to another person, so higher doses for one and lower doses for the other. And, uh, and if I give a too high doses to one person, it will have side effects. And for the other one, it will have, if I give a too low dose, it will, it will not work at all. So it's, it's really, every individual reacts differently. Uh, on different, and so my job is really to try to find what's best for that person. Um, so the, the um, and, and, and for me also the, the, the most important thing is that people feel free to come and are not forced to come. Uh, I have another patient uh, who is very uh, psychotic um, and he cannot sit down at the same place for one for more than five minutes, then he just leaves and, and goes around all over the place and, and he is very lost. Um, so I don't think, and he doesn't seem interested in meditation, so I'm not even asking him to come, but his brother heard that I was meditating, um, and so his brother wants to force him to come. And so I had to tell the brother, well, no, sorry, he can come, but if he wants to go back away, he will go away, and I'm not going to force him to stay. And, and the brother has a hard time understanding that. He's like, yeah, but meditation is so cool, and it's so great, and it's, it's going to help him. It's going to help him to take less medication. And I say, no, he needs to take medication and, and he's not interested and I don't want him to force him because otherwise it will harm him. He will feel forced to do something and he will lose his trust in me. And it's already difficult to build some trust with that person. So, so again, I think the first 
important thing is people need to be motivated to do it because it, if they don't want to do it, we we should not uh, try to you know get everyone to meditate or something. Um, I think it's it's up to people who are open to it and who want to try it out. And, and even if they try it out and they feel that's nothing for me, that's fine too. Um, but uh, so I think any, anyone can do it. Um, and maybe my one of my patients uh, has been meditating uh, more than half an hour per day. He does uh, he does two times forty five minutes or something now. But he started with five minutes and he really feels it really helps him. And so he 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 very slow slowly. Um, builds it up and, and, and that's, he's also a very Christian guy and, and it says it deepens his, his own personal spiritual practice uh, so he doesn't have any motivation to change his religion but he's, he says it helps him and so sometimes he even goes into a church an empty church to meditate there and he feels it's very powerful for him so I think that's amazing those stories are amazing uh, um, and, and as long as, and, and all of my patients, they remain very humble. And I think that's so, I think I, I, sometimes I prefer to be with my patients and meditate with them than to go to an official meditation retreat where you have all those people with very big egos who say, who, or who believe they are enlightened and things like that. With my patients, it's so, it's so humble. We all think, you know, we still need to do so much um, and it's a path and we just take it slowly and um and, and it's yeah and it's still very powerful and very helpful for them very interesting yes. indeed do you have a sense of the mechanism of, of meditation uh, uh, the mechanism that is providing the benefit here in the meditation for, for example so, some people will point to in mindful breathing the regulation of the breathing calming and soothing the nervous system etc as the principal effect others perhaps uh, a connection with greater meaning, religious meaning, or, or something. Others, perhaps, um, uh, a hobby of focused attention, painting, playing a musical instrument, meditating, all, all rather interchangeable in that sense. Have you a sense with your patients as to what the mechanism of of a, of, the, of benefit is? Uh, perhaps it's different for each of them. And is there a meditation-specific mechanism? Or do you feel that this sort of positive effects could be achieved with other interventions, such as you know, art therapy or something like that? I don't know, because some of them do art. Um, well, we, we don't, in, in our hospital, we don't really believe in art therapy. My colleague is very into art. He's an artist himself and he does art with patients. And he also includes non-patients uh, who and so they do art together uh, because he says it's not because someone has a mental health issues that it needs to be known when you look at the painting we love Vincent van Gogh but no one says oh or, or someone else who has diabetes we're not going to say oh that's a painting of a diabetical guy so he really wants to um, increase the dialogue between so that that patients who have uh, who are really artists are recognized as artists and that we don't need to know about uh, their their um, mental health issues but so and he says and it's true it's it's very helpful for those patients and there are probably some mechanisms which are very similar to uh, meditation because you are concentrated on one thing you are in a calm environment and then you are focused on on what you are doing 
um, which is definitely the case in meditation too. But um, yeah, that's a very good question, actually. Um, I think um, the first thing is that the meditation calms people down. Um, it's, it's, if we need to talk about you know, what happens, we are triggering the, the, the parasympathetic nervous system, triggering the nervous vagus, and so calming down, slowing down the heartbeat, slowing down the breathing. Um, and uh, so this is, I think, in, in the second thing is to be, you know, mindful, mindfully breathing, you, you, you start to um, calm down what's happening in the mind, all those thoughts that, that fly around in the mind, you are actually kind of canalizing them. Do you say that in English, canalize, you know, we say that in French where you... Channeling. Channeling, yes, channeling in, into, the, into the, the breathing and so still being aware and, and it also helps them and I think that's what that's what maybe is more specific about the meditation uh, more than, 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 for example, art therapy. Um, it's really being aware of all those thoughts that are there without fighting against them, but just accepting that they are there and, and being aware of them. That's what, that's what they tell me is they say, oh, uh, now I realize how many thoughts are inside of me um, and, and, uh, and, and looking at them like you're watching a movie. And so maybe that's this, the realization um, process a little bit like, you know, I am not my thoughts. I have thoughts, but I am not my thoughts. And I, 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 I observe my thoughts and I observe the emotions that come up uh, without engaging uh, in them. And, you know, many of my patients, also outside my meditation patients, um, are very impulsive too. That's also one of the symptoms that they have. You know, they, they come in, in front of a, of a store and they see nice shoes. And even though they don't have enough money, they go in, inside, they buy the shoes and, and they might have already a few pairs of shoes. They don't need it. And they come home and they are like, oh my God, I didn't need those shoes. But they were impulsive and they bought them. Well, of course we can all be impulsive, but I see that with people with uh, psychiatric issues, it's more, it happens more often. And they say that thanks to this meditation, they, they, they still have those ideas when they, they, they see, for example, those shoes in, in the store, but they, they, they have been learning to not react immediately on their thoughts. Because when you're meditating, I, I tell them you just don't do anything for a few minutes. So even if you think, oh, I need to call that person, well, you'll have to wait after the meditation to call that person. So you don't call that person immediately. And so they, 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 they tell me that they have learned, well, it's still, they, they will still be have uh, impulsive behaviors, but they are less impulsive. They, they told me that now they have had some situations where they saw something nice in a store and, and, and then they, they thought, oh, this is really nice. I wish I had it. And then, well, Maybe those are just my thoughts for the moment. I'll think about it. And if tomorrow I still want them, want it, I will buy it tomorrow. And then by the time it's tomorrow, they realize they don't need it and they don't buy it anymore. So they, they, they say it's very helpful for the impulsive thoughts. And so I think for that, it's very, that's very specific about the meditation. It's really, you know, learning that we don't need to react on every thought that comes up because we have observed that, have observed that thought and, 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 and realized that we are not the thoughts, the, the thoughts come from us, but we are not, we are not identified to our, to our thoughts. 
um, and maybe that's something very specific about it. And they say when that happens, their mind kind of calms down. And, and so that patient I was talking about uh, this morning, that I was talking to this morning, she said that um, since, since she has been meditating, she finds more inner peace sometimes, not all the time. But thanks to this calming down of her mind, she can connect to some inner peace that really that really gives her energy and that she feels really um, hopeful. She, because in the past she had, she had, she has a horrible um, past. She has had lots of trauma and things like that. And, 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 and now thanks to this, the fact that she meditates and, and she, it, it helps her. She says it helps her so much that, that um, because she once in once in a while she can connect to this inner peace and then she knows it there it's there even when she's not connected to that at other moments of the day and so it gives her more it makes her more optimistic about life and 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 so um, and she is also very much into uh, art so she draws a lot uh, which helps her too but it's like she says that the drawing helps her more um, when she has um, very difficult emotions that come up of, of anger, of sadness. She will take a paper and draw things. And then she feels like she's capable of evacuating those difficult emotions. So it's not, and, and she makes very beautiful um, drawings. But it's, she said, it's not the same as, as the meditation. The meditation is, is, is more, she needs to be peaceful enough to be able to, to meditate and then to connect to this inner peace. Uh, so it's, it's kind of complementary. It's, it's, not, it's not the same, but it's complementary. Both of those things help her, but um, yeah. Very interesting. Thank you, Dr. Caroline. I'm wondering uh, now as we're coming to an end, if there's anything left to say anything that doesn't have to be that comes to your mind that you'd like to add uh, to what we've discussed today before we close? <laughs> well, um, yeah, maybe what I would say is that um, I think one of the most uh, difficult issues is um, for my patients at least is the stigma that's hanging on mental illness. On the other hand, most of us are happy that we don't have mental illness and then we say oh it's crazy people we should know that uh, in industrialized countries one out of four people and that's the who which says that it's not me uh, one out of four people will experience mental health issues in lifetime requiring medical help so uh, it's very 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 common it can happen to anyone. No one is no one is safe from mental health issues, um, and um, so we shouldn't be judging too much. Uh, we shouldn't exclude people who have mental health issues or who are at risk of mental health issues because we are. It's it's like a range, right? We, our emotions can have such a big range, so we can all at one point or another end up having mental health issues. And so judging people um, with mental health issues will not help them. Uh, what helps is trying to find ways to connect to them and help them. Um, you know, like for example, when we know of a friend who is in a hospital, who has been hospitalized with, I, I would say a, a broken leg or cancer or whatever, we send get well cards 
people with mental health issues never receive get well cards, for example, just to give one example. So, um, and why is that? It's like, it's a bad thing. And then there's a lot of shame around it. And so uh, I think we should be much more open about it. And it's good because we're starting to talk about it much more. Also, since the pandemic, I really see that there is a change in attitudes. We also see famous people talking about their mental health issues. So I think it's very good. Um, but uh, also in spiritual communities are not immune from uh, mental health issues. It's not because we have a spiritual practice that we will never have mental health issues. So we should be aware of that. And, and, um, and I'm not saying we should exclude people who have mental health risk. Definitely we shouldn't, but we should also be aware of that and, and, and take the right uh, steps to help everyone um, to do, because I think it, it can help anyone, uh, even people with mental health issues. Definitely, maybe most of them, uh, most of, uh, those are the ones who might benefit the most from everyone, but we should be aware of potential side effects and, and take that into account and not just give standardized meditations to everyone. Uh, just just really, yeah. Be careful that we are all individuals. There's a big diversity of human beings and we should take that into account. Dr. Caroline Van Dam, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.